this lie, whenever it comes up in my mind, I naturally want to go to all the obstacles, all the challenges that are blocking my forward progress in life. When I'm facing difficulty, and when you're facing difficulty, our mind often, they run to the wrong questions. It's not, this is up here on the screen, some of these wrong questions. This is not in your listening guide if you want, um, but you can jot these things down. The wrong questions often involve why. Anytime we get in a difficult situation, we start asking the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Victim thinking usually involves why. Why do I have to do all of this by myself? Why? Why me? Anytime we start asking why, we have to be careful because we may be heading down following this lie of thinking it's too hard. Or who? Who's another question that really is the wrong question to ask? Who usually involves blame? We get into the blame game. Who, who's not pulling their weight? Who dropped the ball? Who's responsible for this? And, you know, we, we, again, we hit pressure and we want to start pointing the finger and find out who, who did this or when. Anytime we start asking when questions, again, usually that's the wrong question. When questions usually lead to delay on action or procrastination. When will this ever end? When will this ever get better? When will he or she change? When am I going to get the life that I really wanted? You know, again, why, who, and when? For me personally, when I feel like I'm barely staying afloat, my mind runs to the, the wrong questions. Why did they ask me to do this? Who else has to be this busy? When will this all be over? The questions that we choose in difficult times have great impact. Asking the wrong questions, what, what happens when we ask the wrong questions, all it does is we're feeding the lies that defeat us. We start feeding these lies of it's too hard, I'm too tired, it's not fair. So what th- we're doing this morning is this morning we're looking at a story from Judges chapters 6 and 7 from the Old Testament where we see a man battling internally with the wrong questions. He's asking the wrong things. And we're going to uncover some crucial lessons from the life of a man named Gideon. Gideon was a judge over Israel before they installed their first king. Now, he's not a judge like you and I might think of a judge these days who would just rule over cases and um, you know, serve in a court. A different kind of judge. So I want to explain what a judge was. There was a period of 300 years from the death of Joshua after Joshua died to where there was this period of years where there was this recurring sequence of events. There was a cycle. And so an illustrated up here, I found this online, the judge's cycle. But there's different ways, as I learned about this cycle, or as you read through the, the book of Judges, you see certain things happen continually. And someone got creative and put a bicycle in there to, to illustrate that. But here's the cycle. The Israelites did evil. They do something rebellious. They did what was wrong. And they would, they would begin down this process of evil. And then the anger of God would burn against them. This is God's people who rebelled. And so God would allow them to be raided or pillaged by foreigners who would just outnumber them greatly. And they would come in. These, these different armies, these different groups would just kind of come and hold them captive in their land, take all that they could, and then leave them with nothing. And then the people of Israel, the pattern was they would go, you know, they would have evil. They would get raided. And then they would cry to God for help. God, help us. Help us. At a certain point, God would send them a deliverer or a judge. That's the idea. A judge is a deliverer. Someone that God's spirit would empower a leader to to deliver them from the oppression that they were under. 
Now remember, God was actually behind this process in their history. He was disciplining them for something that they were doing wrong. And then after they were delivered, there would be this season of peace. Peace would follow, and they would be relating to God again. They would be trying to live rightly before him. But then they would go right back to the same evil, and the cycle would continue. And so if you were to look at the story of the judges in that time period, it would actually look like this. Evil, angry God, cry for help, deliverance, judge, peace, evil. But it's actually going down. So it's actually like a cycle that goes down. So the evil that they did was oftentimes much worse than the evil that they were doing years before, before God had delivered them with the previous judge. And so it actually got worse and worse and worse. So that's kind of the way that this process looked for the period of 300 years that you read in the book of Judges. When we meet Gideon, he's just one of the judges that God raised up. The Israelites were now under siege by a group called the Midianites. The Midianites were this massive group of people that would, again, they would raid the people of Israel, clean out their land, all the good stuff that was there, and then they would go on and leave. And the passage says that the Lord had given, given the Israelites into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. And so this process was just continuing. Not so much the cycle, but just this process of Israelites doing evil and God being angry. They allowed, he allowed them to just undergo this oppression for seven years. And so this was their consequence. They had rebelled. This was their consequence. The Midianite oppression was so ruthless that every time the Israelites were planting their crops and things were starting to grow and looking good, the Midianites would come like locusts. And they would devour their crops. And they would lay waste to the land. And so they would take all that there was to take. All the livestock, all the plants, all the crops, everything good. And so Israel was so afraid of their oppressors that they made dens for themselves in mountains and in caves and in strongholds. They would hide. And so any time they had something going on that was good, they would do it in hiding or in secret, in a cave. And so this is where we find the story of Gideon picking up. After seven years, the people had finally cried out to God. They finally had enough. The raiders would come in, not the football team, the raiders, but the raiders would come in from the hills in number that they just couldn't do anything about. And if you've ever seen movies where you've got like this, you know, like the officials that work for the king that are really wicked, and then the townspeople just kind of cooperate with them, and they know anytime the, the men on horses come in working for the king, they can take anything they want. This is kind of what had happened, was when the, when the Midianites would come, they, they wouldn't do anything. There was no way they could defend themselves. They were completely outnumbered. And so they would just stand by and have to start over. And so after seven years of this process, they finally cry out to God for help. God sends them help. He gives a messenger to a man named Gideon. Look at... This is in Judges chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to kind of move through this, hitting some key points. It says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Make a mental note of how God addresses, through this angel, he addresses Gideon as a mighty man of valor. Wouldn't you like to be called that? God sends you an angel? Or just someone else addresses you, Good morning, mighty man of valor. Good morning. Oh, you're like, good morning. It would make you want to kind of, you know, feel like, wow, he's seeing this in me. Then verse 13, but make note of what he says to him. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, 
Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So be, you know, Gideon, what he does here, he begins to whine. He's not acting like a mighty man of valor. God, what's going on here? Where's the miracles? Where's, where's the deliverance? Where, and he, they bring out the violins. He's just singing a sad song here. This doesn't sound like a mighty man. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. He just keeps saying this. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Go in this might of yours. Interesting. Given what Gideon says next. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. See, he's like, We're the weakest tribe of the twelve. We're the weakest one. And then he says, And I'm the least in my father's house. I appreciate the honesty of the scriptures. Here's this guy from a weak tribe, a small tribe, and he's the weakest one in the house. He's, he's like, you picked the wrong guy. The heroes of the Bible are real people that we can identify with. In this case, Gideon responds the way that I would to, to challenging assignments. Are you kidding me? You've come to the wrong guy. I can't do that. I, I, it's way too difficult. This is way too hard. This task is beyond my ability. I don't have what it takes. See, Gideon is sure that God has the wrong guy, that the assignment he's given him is way beyond his ability. He's going to stretch him way too far. It's interesting that God addresses him as a mighty man of warrior, or a mighty man of valor. He says, go in this might of yours. You see, the way God is, this is something about God, is he sees our potential, and then he helps us grow into it. He does this with us. He sees the potential that's in us, and then he helps us grow up into that. Another note about God is that the way that he relates to us is he keeps putting you in circumstances that you cannot handle on your own. He keeps doing this all of our life. He'll put you in a circumstance that you just can't do on your own so that you absolutely have to trust him. This is how our faith grows. This is how we grow. Small groups, good example. Bruce just highlighted this. It's uncomfortable sometimes to step into something new. This is how we grow. He keeps putting us in circumstances where we cannot do on on our own. We have to trust him. This is how he grows us. He keeps putting us beyond our abilities. He pushes us beyond that. And God's response to Gideon is the same response. When Gideon says, how am I going to pull this off? God's response is the same that he gives to every leader who's faced with a challenge in doing his will. It's the same way that he responds to us as we face challenges at work, at home, in life. Look at what he says in verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He's saying that this battle is going to look very different than what you have in your mind. But God, there's so many. of It's going to be like fighting one man. You're going to strike them as if it's one man. For Gideon, this is a defining moment. He can hardly believe what he just heard, so he asks God to confirm the assignment and that this is really God speaking to him through this angel. And so he asks him to give him a sign. The first thing he does by God's instruction is he takes a piece of meat and some unleavened bread and he sets it out and through the staff of this person, this angel, whoosh, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. This miraculous thing happens. God's like, you're Gideon. Okay, this, I should pay attention here. God is using this to build his faith. But then he gives Gideon another assignment. He tells Gideon, I want you to tear down the altars and these idols that the people of Israel have begun to worship. Now, we said that the cycle always begins with Israelites did evil. This is what they were doing, was they were worshiping false gods. So they had 
created these idols to a god that they called Baal, a false god, and they would worship. They would lay down before this false god and worship. And this was detestable in God's sight that his people would do this. This is the God that delivered them from slavery. Now they're worshiping false gods that they made. And so God tells Gideon, tear down the Baal that your father has. Even Gideon's dad had given in to this. This was just part of their family ritual. And so God tells Gideon, tear down the altar that your dad has built to Baal, this false god, and offer a real sacrifice to me. Burn that up. Burn it right where it was standing and offer that to me in place of that fake god. But since Gideon was afraid, he was afraid of causing much attention, he was also afraid of his own people, he did it at night. He starts tearing down this altar, chopping it up. He's going to burn this thing. And then when he does this, a posse comes to kill him. Not from the Midianites, but from among his own people. Who did this? Who tore down this idol? And Gideon's dad, he meets them and kind of saves Gideon. And he says, look, If Baal's really a god, Baal should fight this battle. You don't need to go kill my son. Let Baal fight for himself. He steps in. Now the moment comes when the real enemy shows up. The Midianites and the Amalekites come together. There's this massive army forming, and they encamp in the valley just next to them to prepare to destroy all of Israel. And they're like this swarm of locusts. The Scripture says that you couldn't even count... The camels that they had, they had too many camels, just swarms of people that are ready to defeat Israel. Verse 34 says this, after this large army is coming up against them and assembling. Verse 34 says, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Beazrites were called out to follow him. What happens here is God's Spirit comes upon him in a mighty way. See, in the New Testament, um, we find out that if in Christ, if you're in Christ, if you decide to yield your life to Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, comes to live inside of you, to dwell inside of you. The power of God coming to live inside of us. In this case, God would send his spirit to empower someone to do a task for a season. And so at this point, the spirit of God, because Gideon's starting to cooperate with God, the spirit comes upon him and clothes him. We read in the NIV, I'm reading the ESV, English Standard Version, the NIV reads, the Spirit of God came upon Gideon. But really, the word clothed is far more accurate because the word in Hebrew, labash, means to put on a garment. So it's like God puts this garment of strength, the Holy Spirit comes upon Gideon, empowers him to lead. He takes the trumpet, he blows the trumpet like we're going to war, and then this group, this the Abiyah's rights, they were the poorest clan of Manasseh. They were called out to follow him. So now, <clears throat> God gives him the spirit. He rallies troops behind him. But Gideon, he's still not so certain that this is God. And so he asks God again, can you give me some more signs and some more confirmation? And so he keeps asking him to prove himself. And so he has this test where he, he puts God to the test and said, God, I'm going to put this wool fleece out on the ground. And he said, if it's really you, then... You know, drench this fleece through the night, but leave all the ground around it dry. So, it actually happens. He rings out this fleece, fills up a bowl, and he says, oh, wow, that's huge. God, can you do this as well? And he, he says, let's flip that around. Let's, let's, I'm going to put another fleece out. This time, drench the ground, but leave the fleece dry. Sure enough, God does this. He just continues to, you know, say, this is me. It's really me. 
What happens next, though, reveals, he reveals another aspect of God's way. He, he puts Gideon in a spot where there's no way that he can win the battle on his own strength. At this point, Gideon has 32,000 fighting men. That's a, that's a, that's a decent amount of, of people to, to fight. They were still outnumbered by, the, by these this Midianites and Amalekites. But God says, hey, you've got 32,000 men. You've got way too many people. You have too many men. And so what God does is he tells Gideon, I want you to tell this 32,000 men, go home if you're afraid. Go home if you're trembling. Well, 22,000 of them leave. Can you imagine? 32,000 down to 10,000 to fight this massive army. They were already way outnumbered. Now this just makes things way worse. But still, at this point, there are, there are 10,000 guys to fight the opposition, but God still thinks you've got too many people. If you beat them, you're going to take some credit. And so he says, you've still got too many. So he, takes, he has Gideon take his men to the stream, and he says, I'm going to separate this group even more. And he says, tell the men to get some water. And he says, the ones that, that put their, there's going to be two groups. He says, some of them are going to just, you know, basically kneel down and put their head all the way in the stream and just start drinking from the stream. There's another group that are going to just kind of bend down and lap water up like a dog. And he says, I want you to take the ones who lapped the water up like a dog and fight with those people. There was only 300. Everyone else put their noses in the, you know, in the stream. I don't know why God chose to separate in the way that he did. Some people say it's because the group who was just kneeling down like this may have been more watchful. And maybe the first group that he thinned out was he didn't want them to be with fearful people. So he kind of gets the group that really wanted to be there for motivation, and secondly, he gets the most watchful bunch to fight this battle. So he takes from 32,000 to 10,000, now down to 300 people. That is less than 1% of what he started with. Can you imagine? Well, less than 1%. This is Gideon's fighting force, 300 against swarms. The odds are against him. God strengthens him, though, in spite of his fears, and he heads into battle. We're just going to read the climax of this story. You can read the details in in Judges chapter 7, but I'm going to pick up in verse 16 and just read this. You'll have it on the screen. It says, He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. And I'm reading this. I'm like, I'm sorry, where's the swords? Where's the weapons? Where's the, where's the bow and arrows? Where's the you know, battle rams? And you know, Give us some high-powered jars and torches. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their left hands, the torches, and in their rights the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set, a, set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And so what happened was, let me just imagine, in the middle of the night, this group of 300 surrounds this enemy camp. They surround them. They spread out. They light their torches. They make all this noise. They start shouting. The enemy wakes up, and they don't know what to do. They, they see all this stuff, and they end up taking their swords on each other. And it... 
what God had said, hey, they're going to be like fighting one man. They didn't even have to do anything. I mean, they obeyed God, but God delivered them. We need to know this about God. He will keep putting us in circumstances that seem too hard to accomplish in our own strength so that we'll rely on Him. This happens over and over. This is how He grows. This is how He accomplishes His work through us. In spite of what we feel, God knows what you can do, and He wants to help you do it. He wants to help you move forward. We looked last week at strength, courage. Strength and courage and carefulness. Courage is that, that commitment to move forward in faith. See, whenever we're thinking it's too hard, our courage is, is stopped. We're, we're blocked from moving forward. See, this has really helped me fight the lies of impossibility. God is not absent. He's not missing. If I'll remind myself, God is he's, he's waiting for me to ask him for help. He's waiting for you to ask him for help as well. You're training your kids, ask him for help. If your marriage seems stuck, ask him for help. If you're in a pit financially, ask him for help. In these moments when we're thinking, man, it's just too hard, we must shift our focus to factor in God's power. We have to do that. We have to shift from thinking, I, I can't do this. It's just too hard. We have to shift away from the, the, the lies that defeat us and factor in what God can do. This takes more than just realizing that God is powerful. It means that knowing that God is the one who will take care of me beyond my understanding. He's the one that, that can act. He can move. And when we truly believe that he'll take care of us, we can move forward in courage and in confidence because his power is what sustains us. God's power provides victory in the battle in three different ways. One, as we tell ourselves the truth. He provides power and victory in the battle as we tell ourselves the truth about his word, as we remind ourselves and correct our perspective. God has given us the truth in the Bible as a way to counter the defeating lies. Here's the truth about God. Jeremiah, a prophet, he stated this. Jeremiah was watching his people pretty much about to be swept away. This is much later in the Israelite history. But he's imprisoned at a certain point. He's imprisoned because he's a prophet of God and people don't like... He's talking to his own people about God's message and people don't like it, so they put him in prison. And he's in prison. And while he's in prison, God tells him to buy a field for the future when God would deliver his people once again. And so he prays this prayer. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You see, this is the truth about God. There is nothing at all that we're facing that is too difficult for him. I don't know about you, but this provides a tremendous amount of hope. I may not have what it takes to not give in or to not give up, but God will give me what I need to accomplish his purpose if I'll continue to walk in his will and in his ways. Why? Because nothing at all is too hard for him. This is why reading the Bible is so helpful, especially on a continual basis, because it gives us the truth that helps us as we're on the verge of giving in. Right when I'm ready to give in or give up, if I go to the Word of God and I, and I read it for strength and I read it for direction, for answers, I read it for my life, and I'm not just, not just reading it as a duty or a chore or an obligation or out of guilt, but I read it because... It's my food, and I have, to, I have to take this in to live. As I go to it, when I'm on the verge of giving up or giving in, he gives strength. He gives victory. Also, we gain victory as we set our minds to fulfill God's purposes, just like Gideon. Setting our minds to fulfill God's purpose, you know, 
just like Gideon, we have to decide whether we will cave into fear or trust God and his commands. God's power gives us the resolve that we need. It gives us the resolve to tell God what we need, you know, to cry out to God. You know, when we pray, God, I'm going to complete the assignments that you've given me, even if I die trying. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to stay committed to this. I need your help. Please, I'm not giving up. I just, I, I've decided, I've set my mind, I'm going to fulfill your purposes here. That's the bottom line. It may kill me, but I'm going to die following you. I'm going to die pointing in the direction of following you. If I'm found dead in the street, I want to know that I was aiming in the right direction. Because I've, I've set my mind to fulfill God's purposes. And then last, once we've resolved in our minds that we're going to stay in the game with God and continue to trust Him, then we take action. Just like Gideon, we take action. What are you facing right now that seems too difficult? What is it? What about your life seems impossible for you to move forward and courage? Maybe you're here this morning and there's a relationship that you've wanted to bail out on because relating the right way is just too difficult. Or maybe you're trying to get traction in your relationship with, with God, but getting into the Bible and praying is a discipline that just seems too difficult to sustain. Or maybe you have no idea how to get on track with honoring God with your money or at work. Or maybe you're... You're one month into your semester, and it's not looking good, and it just seems too hard already, and you're ready to bail out. All the areas of, of life may be mounting pressure on you. I want to encourage you, take action. Do what God wants you to do. If you're not sure what that is, if you need help in knowing what that is, if you're in a small group, start sharing some of these details with your group leader or people in your group. I just feel like all this pressure, I don't know what to do. I don't think I can go on. Open up with some people. Ask for perspective. We would love to help you as a congregation. But blessing comes from God as we take action to do what he wants us to do, what he's asked us to do. We find what he wants us to do in the Bible. Opposition comes when we start trying to do what's in the Bible. But he wants us to keep pressing forward. As the worship team comes back up and the ushers prepare to receive this morning's tithes and offering, I'd like to wrap up this message by asking you to think through your next steps. Would you uh, pull out that connection card that you see out of your program and maybe take, take a moment to finish up filling out any information or take a look at these next steps that I'm suggesting on your connection card. These are some practical ways that you can apply this week's message. Um, these are suggestions. If you've got something already that you feel like, man, I really need to do this, then by all means, go with that. But here's some suggested next steps. My next step today, number one, is memorize Jer- Jeremiah 32:17. The verse where Jeremiah says, there's nothing too hard for you. Just learning that, memorizing that, committing that to memory. There's not limits on what God can do. Or take action to do what God wants me to do. Just, if you already know what that is, maybe there's something you feel like, okay, I've been delaying. I'm asking the wrong questions. What is it you need to take action? Let, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how true it is. And God, despite our emotions this morning, despite the pressure we're facing, the reality of our circumstances, despite all of that, nothing is too hard for you. We just declare that. That's the truth. We declare that together. Help us to set our minds to fulfill your purpose. If 
we're in a commitment, if we're in commitments, Lord, help us to keep our commitments. Help us to finish what you've asked us to do. Lord, if you've called us to certain things, if you've developed convictions in us that we have said, yeah, this is from God, Lord, help us to finish those things. If we're trying to form new convictions, just get started in walking with you. Lord, help us to keep taking those next steps right here and now. Would you clothe clothe us with strength to do these things that you're putting in our minds and on our hearts this morning? Lord, and as we receive this morning's offering, again, we just, we see this as an act of worship before you. So we thank you for the way that you've asked us to hold with an open hand the things you've placed in ours. So Lord, as we give back to you, would you be honored, blessed through our giving? Would you use it to accomplish way more than we could do on our own as a church and as small groups? But Lord, would you continue to provide for all the needs of this congregation and more help us to reach out beyond us. In Jesus' name.